Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Gardeners of the Galaxy, a new podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I am Emma the Space Gardener and I will be your host as we explore cultivating the cosmos, planting planets and sowing seeds in space. We've got some great stories in the show today, including orbital apple seeds, vertical farms and seawater greenhouses. But our first story today is about an intrepid NASA plant scientist who has been growing moon radishes in his kitchen, right here on Earth. During the COVID-19 lockdown, people have turned to all kinds of things to keep themselves occupied. Some have taken the time to get fit, learn a new language or get creative. Many people have taken to baking, which has led to shortages of flour, yeast and, my dad tells me, glacé cherries. NASA scientist Max Coleman has also been in the kitchen, but with a different goal in mind. He's been working on an experiment that could help astronauts grow radishes on the moon. Why radishes? Coleman says, they've been used in space before and they germinate very, very fast. Coleman and his team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory are trying to replicate, physically and chemically, moon soil, which is called regolith. It's not like soils we find on Earth being completely devoid of organic matter. It's really just rock, with particles ranging in size from fine dust to boulders. A year or so into their research, the team were poised to start hands-on tests of sensors that might eventually be used on the moon. Then COVID-19 came along and sent everyone to their rooms. The team kept in touch via video chats, and during one of those, an idea sprouted in Coleman's head for a homemade radish lab. They were discussing how they could, hypothetically, try growing some radishes with no nutrients and some with a small amount of nutrients. In no time at all, Coleman had ordered radish seeds and desert sand for home delivery, the sort of sand that's usually sold as a top layer to make pots of cacti look pretty. He says that the idea is to demonstrate how astronauts can use horticulture to grow their own food on the moon. This is one small step, showing whether lunar soil contains nutrients that plants can extract. They need the right chemical elements to make chlorophyll and grow cell walls. Radishes are so quick-growing that it would be possible to conduct such an experiment in one lunar day, which is equal to 28 Earth days. Coleman's experiment involved using recycled food packaging divided into four equal sections. He filled each section with desert sand and added a different amount of water in each section. He sowed his radish seeds using chopsticks as dibbers. What he found was that radishes in the section with the least water germinated first and best. That's an exciting result because water will have to be rationed for moon gardeners. He also managed to use folded aluminium foil to make electrodes using a battery tester to measure electrical resistance from the water and measure moisture levels and track evaporation in the sand. This kitchen sink ingenuity is all in the name of in-situ resource utilisation, that is, enabling astronauts to make use of the moon's resources to provide the water, oxygen and materials they need. Blasting stuff into space is an expensive business, so the less you need to take with you, the better. The team's ultimate goal is to develop their experiment as a small payload on a commercial spacecraft going to the moon. It would put lunar soil in a chamber where water and air would be added in an attempt to grow radishes. There won't be any astronauts there to harvest them, of course, but the team plans on adding a small camera and to make images and other data available so that the children of Earth can watch radishes grow on the moon. I don't know about you, but I would watch that show. (laughs) 
Now, those moon radishes may not have made it off planet yet, but some apple seeds have been blasted into space. You may remember that in December 2019, Boeing launched its CST-100 Starliner capsule on its first mission to the International Space Station. The headline for that mission was that it didn't go according to plan and Starliner failed to dock with the ISS. After orbiting Earth 33 times in 48 hours, the capsule returned to Earth. So there will be a second test flight, which is currently scheduled for November 2020. At the time, I blogged about the tree seed Starliner carried into space. It flew with a collection of seeds of several species. Douglas fir, loblolly pine, sycamore, redwood and sweetgum. They were a nod to the Apollo 14 mission, which carried the same mix of species into space in 1971. On their return to Earth, the Apollo seeds were planted across the USA and further afield and became known as the moon trees. That's a story for another day, and the Starliner seeds are destined to be distributed to Boeing sites, suppliers and other stakeholders across the country to grow the first generation of Starliner trees. I don't have any updates on that, so hopefully that's something we can come back to in future episodes. In the meantime, I recently became aware that another batch of seeds flew on the same flight, and this is a charming story. Mike Mongo wrote a book called The Astronaut Instruction Manual and does a lot of work getting kids interested in science and in careers in space. He has a YouTube channel of astronaut adventures. While he was working on his space stuff, Mike learned about Tim Peake's Principia mission to the ISS, which carried seeds from the apple tree whose falling fruit inspired Isaac Newton's theory of gravity. When those seeds came back to Earth, they were germinated and nurtured by scientists at Kew, and half a dozen space saplings went off to new homes earlier this year. Reading about those apple seeds led to an idea germinating in Mike's head, because the USA has its own apple-related hero, Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed was a real person who was born in America in 1774. He lived a strange and nomadic life. For more than 40 years, Johnny wandered the continent, planting hundreds of thousands of apple trees on the frontier. In doing so, he became a person of legend, often depicted wearing a cooking pot for a hat. He is also revered for his virtues, living in peaceful coexistence with plants, animals and humans alike. There's almost nothing in the historical record about him, but it's estimated that he planted more than six million apple trees during his lifetime. Mike managed to track down a surviving tree planted by Johnny Appleseed, hatched a plan, found some organisations willing to help and launched the Johnny Appleseed in Space project. It's seeds from that tree that went into space last year. The plan was for the space-flown seeds to be distributed to participating US schools for propagating and planting alongside seeds from the same tree that had stayed on Earth. That was the plan, but like so many plans this year, it was derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. But now Mike has sent 10 seeds to Alexander Myers, a researcher in Ohio University's Department of Environmental and Plant Biology. Alexander has been charged with the care and germination of these genuine space apple seeds from the last living tree planted by Johnny Appleseed himself. So that's excellent news that the project is continuing and Gardeners of the Galaxy will be keeping an eye out for future updates on Johnny Appleseed in space. We're back down to Earth for the next segment and NASA staff don't have a monopoly on growing space crops in their kitchens. Sitting on my kitchen windowsill, my aero garden is currently growing a crop of sage. I like to call it my space sage. <laughs> the aero garden is an all-in-one tabletop hydroponic garden and it's designed to be easy to use. The plants sit in a nutrient solution and there's a pump to gently aerate it. 
and some funky LED grow lights to give the plants the light they need. The Aero Garden has a timer to control the lighting and a warning light to tell you when to add more feed. Other than that, it's just a case of topping up the reservoir with water. I have the smallest unit with space for three plants and I like to set it up for space missions. For this one, I took some cuttings from sage plants in my garden, popped them into plugs of grow medium and set them in the Aero Garden to grow underneath a clear plastic lid to give them a more humid environment. They've now rooted nicely and pretty soon I will be able to start harvesting sage leaves. Now, my little aero garden isn't going to feed the world, but according to some new research, there's a growing environmental and economic case for soil-free, computer-controlled, vertical farms. If you're a gardener in the UK, then no doubt you've come across bags of potting compost bearing the name John Innes. It's not a brand name, it's a set of standardised potting mixes developed in the 1930s by two research workers at the John Innes Horticultural Institution. They also introduced methods of heat sterilising soil with steam, which eliminates pests and diseases. During the Dig for Victory campaign during World War II, the institution released both the compost recipe and the heat sterilisation process, giving Britain a helping hand in the battle to feed itself. John Innes, therefore, became a household name. Fast forward 80 years or so and the John Innes Centre is an independent international centre of excellence in plant science, genetics and microbiology. At least that's what it says on their website. They teamed up with the University of Bristol and the aeroponic technology company Let Us Grow to identify what we need to know to accelerate the sustainable growth of vertical farming using aeroponic systems. Aeroponics uses a spray of nutrient solution rather than plants sitting in the solution, which is what you see in standard hydroponic systems. You may have seen images of vertical farms and know that they grow crops indoors in stacked systems. Water, lighting and nutrient levels are carefully controlled, increasingly by computer systems employing artificial intelligence to make decisions. The environmental benefits of vertical farms include them being sited in urban locations, which means food is grown closer to its consumers. Vertical farms also isolate crops from pests and diseases, avoid soil degradation and reduce the inputs needed by recycling water and nutrients. They also avoid the issues of fertiliser running off into the environment and polluting watercourses. And as green energy becomes more abundant and costs fall, vertical farms can come close to being carbon neutral. Another considerable advantage of vertical farms is that they allow us to grow crops in inhospitable places, including deserts, Antarctica and other frozen regions, and in space. Dr Anthony Dodd is a group leader at the John Innes Centre. He says that vertical systems allow us to extend the latitude range on which crops can be grown on the planet, from the deserts of Dubai to the four-hour winter days of Iceland. In fact, if you were growing crops on Mars, he says, you would need to use this kind of technology because there is no soil. At the moment, aeroponic farms tend to grow high-value crops such as salads, pak choy, herbs, leafy greens, pea shoots and bean shoots. John Innes Centre researchers have bred a line of broccoli adapted to grow indoors for a major supermarket. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on some seeds for that? And Lettuce Grow is working on how to grow fruiting and rooting crops such as strawberries and carrots and on the aeroponic propagation of trees for both fruit and forestry. According to Jack Farmer, their chief scientific officer, climate change is only going to increase the demand for this technology. Projected changes in regional weather patterns and water availability are likely to impact agricultural productivity soon. Vertical farming offers the ability to grow high-value nutritious crops in a climate-resilient manner all year round, providing a reliable income stream for growers. 
Now, if you would like to read the study itself, it has been published open access in the New Phytologist Journal. It's called Getting to the Roots of Aeroponic Indoor Farming, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that for you. So those were the three primary payloads for this week's show. Johnny Appleseed in Space, The Future for Vertical Farms and Kitchen Top Moon Radishes. But there's still some room left in the storage locker, so let's take a quick look at some other fascinating plant stories. Let's do the bad news first. New research has demonstrated that plant roots can suck up microplastics from the soil so that our food plants are now contaminated with plastic. Microplastics are tiny pieces of plastic less than 5mm long. We shed them into our environment through using things like plastic food packaging, synthetic fibres and car tyres. They've previously been found in seafood, salt and even drinking water. What we don't know yet is what effect that's having on the environment and on human health. Odds are eating plastic isn't going to be good for us. If you're worried about that, and who isn't, then there are lots of resources out there to help you reduce the amount of plastic you use. Unfortunately, the pandemic has caused a resurgence in single-use plastics. Oil companies and plastic companies are capitalising on the crisis by insisting we need single-use plastic to keep everything sanitary. However, proper research is starting to show that's not true and reusable containers and bags are perfectly safe, so hopefully we can get back on the plastic reduction track really soon. In better news, people are working on growing plants using seawater. One of the problems facing Earth is a shortage of clean drinking water, and that's a big problem because our crop plants are as thirsty as we are. The World Health Organization predicts that by 2025, half of the global population will be living in water-stressed areas. There's no shortage of water on Earth, of course, but most of it is salty. We can remove the salt from seawater to make it drinkable, but that's an energy-intensive process. Charlie Patton is the UK-based founder and director of the Seawater Greenhouse Project. It uses two things we have in abundance, seawater and sunlight, to grow food in the middle of the desert. Using an innovative method of desalination, solar-powered seawater greenhouses use salt water to create ideal growing conditions. Over the last decade, Patton and his team have established successful seawater greenhouses in arid, sun-baked coastal locations such as Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Australia and Somaliland. Inside, juicy cucumbers, plump tomatoes and brilliant red raspberries defy the challenging environment. In 2017, a competing team built the Sahara Forest Project. It's the size of four football fields located 15 kilometres from the Red Sea in Jordan. The theory behind these projects is that if you create a cooler, moist microclimate inside the greenhouse, plants will require less water. If you've ever encountered an evaporative cooling unit, you'll know that blowing air over cold water produces a cooling breeze. In seawater greenhouses, the water used is salt water. It evaporates into the greenhouse atmosphere, cooling it down and increasing the humidity. When it condenses, it can be collected and used to irrigate the crops in the greenhouse, revegetate the surrounding area and even provide a source of clean drinking water. The salty brine that's left behind can be evaporated further to produce sea salt for cooking. There are plenty of obstacles to overcome before seawater greenhouses become commonplace, but it's lovely to see relatively simple technology allowing the desert to bloom. And so earlier on, I was talking about some of the pastimes people have been getting into during the pandemic. Of course, gardening has been a big one for many people. If you're lucky enough to have outdoor space, then it really relieves lockdown. And it's well documented that spending time outside in nature and gardening provide benefits for both our mental and physical health. I don't know what I would have done without my gardens indoors and out, which have helped to keep me sane and also kept us well fed during the initial panic buying and food supply issues. 
I love the occasional stories you get in the media about gardeners finding long-lost wedding rings wrapped around their carrots. It happens regularly enough that it seems that planting carrots would be an excellent way to recover a ring if you think you lost it in the garden. It was recently reported that a homeowner in Germany found something a little more extraterrestrial in his garden. In 1989, he dug up a massive chunk of rock while digging a trench and left it to one side. Only in January of this year did it occur to him that his rock might have come from further afield, and he notified the Institute of Planetary Research at the German Aerospace Centre. They confirmed that it is the largest meteorite ever found in Germany, weighing in at over 30 kilos. It has been officially named Blaubeuren after the small medieval town where it was discovered. Geologically speaking, it's a brachia, a rock made from fragments of other stones. Somewhere in its past, it has experienced at least one violent collision. It should have a more peaceful future, though, as its owner hopes it can be put on permanent display in a museum. And the British Museum's portable antiquities scheme has been notified of several archaeological discoveries from people who had extra time to tend their gardens, including pottery, jewellery and medieval coins. Although many of these finds would not be classed as buried treasure, they do tell us interesting things about local history. That's why the British Museum is encouraging gardeners to notify their portable antiquities scheme at finds.org.uk about any found objects. They note that most finders get to keep what they've unearthed. That wasn't true of the woman on the south coast of England who dug up an unexploded bomb left over from World War II. Unaware of what she had found, she threw it across the garden. Then she took it into the house to clean it up with a Brillo pad to take a closer look. After being advised what it might be, she rang the police and bomb disposal experts later carried out a controlled explosion on the beach. So, keep an eye out. Digging in your garden could bring you treasure, but could also be a dangerous activity. Personally, I prefer no dig garden and my raised beds are filled with compost, topsoil and manure, so the only buried treasure I will be unearthing this year is potatoes. So that's it for this episode. I'll be blasting off with a new payload of intergalactic gardening goodies very soon. In the meantime, you'll find lots more information on growing plants on Earth and beyond on my website, theunconventionalgardener.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Orbital Gardens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Orbital Gardens is mission control. We're confirming termination of your signal. The ground control team would like you to rerun the radish cropping experiment. Apparently, there was a bit of a mix-up with the samples you sent down and the technicians had them for lunch. They did say to tell you they were very tasty. Mission Control out.